Brothers and sisters, if you put aside the wonderful joys that we have on this day, the days of being able to dedicate our choristers and to give thanks for our musicians and what we will be doing later today with the blessing of the animals, I think it's fair to say that aside from all of that, this morning's revised common lectionary Bible readings that we all just heard, probably more than any other, puts the preacher who finds himself standing in this spot on this Sunday morning between the proverbial rock and the hard place. I say that because all three scripture readings, just as they really have been, if you've been paying attention for the last month, are tough for us as Christians today to dig into and parse out. This is the fourth cycle for me of this particular set of readings that I've been preaching on for the last 11 years as a priest. And it's the fourth time I've had to stand in the pulpit and preach on it. And I have to be honest with you, it ain't getting any easier. Last Sunday, if you remember my sermon on Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 50, was all about this very variety of tough, hard, sobering words that we find of Jesus in the Gospels. Of Jesus telling us last week, if you remember, that if our hands or our feet cause us to stumble in our walk of faith, then we should cut them off. And if an eye causes us to stumble in our faith, then we should do nothing less than gouge it out. That was certainly very tough to hear. But maybe it wasn't that hard to pass over if you heard it as something sort of like a biblical metaphor for what we should and shouldn't do. But this morning, when we hear once again Jesus talk about divorce, we find ourselves standing right in the middle of something that has most likely affected all of us and our personal lives sometime over the course of today. Whether we ourselves have gone through the painful experience of divorce personally, or whether we've had family members or close friends who have gone through it. Over these last 11 years, every time I preached on this particular Sunday in the church, I've always chosen the gospel passage from Mark 10, verses 2 through 16, on which to sermonize. I did it in those early years of my priesthood, mainly to speak out to those in my parish who themselves had gone through the struggle of divorce. And I had to preach on that tough gospel three years ago right here at All Saints because I had suddenly found myself having gone through divorce personally as well. But there's also another reason I want to tell you about that I always chose to preach on the gospel every three years on this Sunday. That's simply because as tough as that gospel may be to preach on, it is still way easier to try to preach on that than it is to preach on the Old Testament assigned for today, the opening chapters of the Hebrew book of Job. I say that because as clergy in the 21st century, we already know when we're in seminary that we're going to have to deal with issues of marriage and divorce. We know it and we've prepared ourselves for it, or at least we better have. But to preach on the suffering of righteous Job in the Old Testament and to try and apply it to the suffering that we find in our own lives and in our world and in our faith today is without question as challenging as it would have been 4,000 years ago. So because we have two other readings, 
one from the letter to the Hebrews and, of course, the Gospel of Mark. And because we have a psalm and because it's close to the Feast of St. Francis and we're blessing animals or we have new choristers to dedicate or we just want to deal with the world that we must face outside those doors, because of all of that, I guarantee you that the majority of clergy this morning will find a way to avoid preaching on the book of Job. So with that confession made to all of you, I feel absolutely compelled this morning to force myself to finally do just that, to preach the Old Testament and to preach Job. I'm compelled to finally do it, not just because I've avoided it for the last 11 years, but because I've come to know in my phase of ministry Uh, And as I've tried to say to you over the last couple of Sundays of preaching, that it's actually in the toughest uh, verses of Scripture that we might be able to find once again power to shake our faith down to its core and to get our spiritual hearts and minds breathing again. That which can force us to go into a place in our faith that we ourselves have been trying to avoid, but which all of us desperately need to hear. The longer I walk down the path of sacred scripture and the more I return to the authority that the Bible brings in our life, the more I find myself being called to proclaim to you that it might just be these hard parts of the Bible that can save us if we'll just open our hearts and our minds and our ears and take them in in totality. This morning we're being presented with the unique chance to dig into the Bible and find a man that might just represent someone that we ourselves have known in our lives. Someone that maybe we've seen from a distance or someone that's been close to us and someone who might even be who we ourselves have been or who we are now, or who we will certainly be somewhere in the future. For the Bible this morning opens the book of Job by telling us one thing about Job that we all are struggling for if we're here in this church this morning. That Job is a man who has become blameless and upright in his life. A man who fears his God and who does everything he can to turn away from evil. That's where we begin in this reading that we'll cover over the next month in the book of Job. And it begins with just one verse out of 22 other verses that make up the first chapter of this book of the Bible. And Job doesn't just appear to be a good man if you keep going past verse 1. He is, in fact, the best man from the perspective of the Hebrew Scripture two to 4,000 years ago, and perhaps all these years later. What is left out of our readings this morning is just how much this goodness and faithfulness appears to be paying off for the righteousness of dear old Job as our story begins. For in verse 2 and 3, we hear this, that righteous and faithful Job is more than just a good man. He's a man who has seven sons and three daughters. He has 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was in fact the greatest of all the people of the East. That's who Job was. And on top of that, as the chapter continues through what we didn't hear this morning, we move from the earthly realm to the heavenly realm where God himself is gathering his spiritual counsel, and we find out right away 
that God sees and honors this goodness and this faithfulness in this servant Job. But within that moment of honor, one of the earliest encounters that we come to happens between God's chosen adversary, the obstructor, the opponent, which occurs in the Bible, the one who the Hebrew Scripture will first introduce to us as Hasetan, the one who will eventually become known to us in our Christian faith as the devil. It is this spiritual being that God has set in place as a prosecutor this morning who is looking to find a way of calling Job's faithfulness into question in front of God. The Satan will say to God, of course, Job is the best man of the East. Of of course, he's good and righteous and faithful because you, O Lord, have given him everything. So the Satan says to God in chapter one, verse 11, stretch out your hand now and touch all that Job has. And if you do so, he will curse you to your face. And with that, in one day's time, the Bible tells us that Job loses everything. The Bible says that Job, like any human being would, ends that day by tearing his clothes, cutting his hair, and throwing himself to the ground in mourning and devastation. Job will use probably the one phrase that all of us have heard before from this particular book of the Old Testament. Job will say, the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. But that's not how this portion of the story will end in chapter 1. For Job will then turn around and pull the rug out from under Satan's prosecution by finishing off that phrase with these words, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's from that that we pick up the beginning of the book of Job from our assigned lesson this morning in chapter 2, where the Satan has yet another plan to overturn this righteous man, Job. When the adversary returns to that heavenly council, God will say to him again, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still persists in his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. So the Bible says that Satan then asked for permission from God to go one step beyond that and for God to allow him to touch Job's body, causing what the Bible says are horrible, painful sores and boils to form all over the body of Job. Chapter 2 would tell us that this is so afflicting that Job will go and sit himself down in the midst of ashes and use them to cover his skin, itching horribly with anything that he can lay his hands on. This week's passage comes to its conclusion with Job's wife seeing him in his terrible physical state, obviously sharing with him herself the grief of all that they have lost, their lands, their livestock, and most importantly, their children. And so she asked Job, From her own place of pain, do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and let yourself die. And really, why wouldn't she ask Job that question? How many of us have had a moment when it seems like everything we've worked on or all that we've tried to hope for has been suddenly taken from us or taken from someone we love? As a priest, I can tell you, I don't know how many times that I've been standing with someone in a hospital room or someone in a funeral 
home or in a kitchen or in my office. And I've heard them saying over and over again, why? Why is God letting this happen? And if I'm honest with you, I've certainly had my own moments of asking that very same question myself. With all that has happened in just two chapters of the book of Job, it shouldn't be surprising that Job's wife is ready for this man to lash out. This man who seemed to be doing everything right, who was faithful and who did not deserve this excruciating physical and mental emotional pain to say something. Why would she not want him to be angry? Why would she not want him to look the God he so diligently serves directly in the face and curse God before he himself rolls over in that ash and dies just in spite of the creator who gave him life? But if you read through the book of Job, you'll find that it's in these extreme moments that Job seems to find something that perhaps he's never quite thought of before. Maybe because he's never experienced this pain or agony before. Maybe it is true that what we've come to call the patience of Job is nothing more than hard-headed ridiculousness or nonsense. Or maybe it is in the final verse that we just heard that the door cracks open just a little to begin to reveal a direction for the long sought after answer to why Job the righteous is suffering. Something pushes the hardship and the mystery of this book of the Old Testament out of history and prophets and Torah and into the deep writings of the Jewish wisdom literature. For Job, even in the darkness and the ashes of chapter two, manages to see something beyond that age old idea which as old as it is still lingers amongst us. That idea that says that if we only have good faith and are righteous in the face of God, it's done because it brings about the good rewards that we seek. That if we're righteous, God will present us with righteous things. There can be no doubt this morning that that's what the accuser Satan was assuming that Job would believe. That's certainly what Job's friends will soon cling to as they converse with Job. But this morning, Job is beginning to sort out a different path in his harsh suffering and to begin to see something else in the God that he's faithful to. And so with that, he looks at his wife in the midst of that distress and he says to her, shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? Well, that phrase in the New Jewish Study Bible is translated from Hebrew into English with some slight variation. In that newer translation of Scripture, Job says this, should we accept only good from God and not accept the evil? Now, I think we can go even one step further with the wisdom of Job and begin to ask of our suffering selves, is God not present with us in both the best of times, but then present with us in the worst of times? Or simply, is God not God no matter what? God when we face heaven and God when we stand within the gates of life's hell. Is God not with us no matter what and always? And if that is the case, even in the midst of agony and suffering, is there not still hope that comes to us in our life, in our relationship with God? Brothers and sisters, that's such an important question that we need to ask ourselves, isn't it? 
a question we need to ask when we find ourselves overwhelmed by the darkness of this world, caught up in the suffering and in the loss and in physical, mental and emotional pain in our own lives. Is God not with us there too? I would say as Christians, this is the direction sign that we can come in contact with, pointing Job and all of us in the direction of something that is beginning to form, even in the Old Testament, on the horizon ahead of us, pointing us forward toward the suffering servant that we'll meet again in Isaiah, and onward to the Lamb of God who will come among us to take on the very kind of suffering that Job himself faced, and which all of us can and will and must face in order to destroy the accuser and to set the world of darkness right again. This is the beginning of the story of Job that we'll be reading through this month. And I don't know about you, but if you read it, you can begin to see the cross that is within it. Let me leave you this morning with just a tiny portion of the second reading we heard from the letter of Hebrews. The letter of Hebrews says this, Long ago God spoke to our ancestors in many various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. We do see Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of suffering and death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. This opens our way of reading Job. I invite you to continue reading over the month ahead and keep your eyes on the cross as you think about suffering. Amen.